Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Alan Gratz, an instant number one New York Times bestselling author of 17 novels for young readers, including Ground Zero, Refugee, Ban This Book, and his latest, Two Degrees. Alan is joined by Ransom Riggs, number one New York Times bestselling author of the Miss Peregrine series of novels, including Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children and his latest, The Desolations of Devil's Acre. In this reflective discussion, Alan and Ransom mull the nature of nostalgia in the digital age, compare early video games, and explain how to find your way to a story through detailed research. You'll also learn about the Ghost Army. Seriously. Inspiration starts now. Well, hello, Alan. How are you doing today? Hey, Ransom, I'm doing great. I was trying to think about... I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we've met, and I was trying to think about where and when we met, and I was thinking that it was maybe a North Texas Teen Book Festival. That is very possible. Yeah. Um, I, yeah I, and are... I know that I... I know that I also saw you at a GeekyCon. I think I did. But I don't know that you saw me. I wasn't, I wasn't a guest at GeekyCon, but my family and I went as attendees, and I'm pretty sure... I, I thought I remembered you there reading on a panel with a, with, with a bunch of other authors reading stuff that you wrote when you were a kid. Juvenalia, I remember that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I remember that. And you were a very own. good writer when you were a kid. I don't remember that. That's very kind of you. <laughs> I remember Marie Lu reading some amazing Sonic the Hedgehog uh, fan fiction she wrote when she was <laughs> small, which was the highlight of all GeekyCon, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, well, it's great to chat with you. Uh, it's been a long time, uh, and uh, especially with the pandemic, I haven't run into a lot of folks uh, to chat with. Um, how have things been going for you? Uh, well, you know, the pandemic was great for no one. Um, yeah. but, um, you know, so we had our, we had our daughter and we had our books and, uh, we were lucky to have family <laughs> fairly close nearby and, um, you know, in our bubble and stuff. So, uh, it's been okay. All things considered. Um, yeah. it feels like we're, we're all, you know, collectively moving past it and now into this amazing, like triple flu season. So, um, right. <laughs> yeah. But, so that's good. Yeah, I've got. I'm just starting to get back into doing in-person events, and I'm still really nervous about it. I'm still really. Um, uh, it's weird to, to to dip my toe back into that pool, and um, I've got a flight coming up this weekend, and I, I think it's my first time on a plane in years. Uh, I, I'd have to go back quite a ways to figure out um, uh, when uh, when it last was, and. Um, yeah. So, but I mean, I want to I want to get back out there and, and see readers and 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 um, see other writers. Um, but it's, I don't know. It's a little scary. I just got, well, not just, but a month ago, I finished my tour for Museum of Wonders. Um, yeah. And it was a lot of airplanes and a lot of cities and a lot of folks. And um, I made it through without getting sick, which is great. And I hope I didn't make anyone else sick. I didn't seem to have right. anything myself. So. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Uh, but then I got home and my daughter got some some yuck from school and passed it around yeah. the house. So that's, you know, <laughs> you've got, I think you've kindergarten got may be more dangerous than an airplane. <laughs> it might be. It might be. Yeah, absolutely. So so you, you got back out on the road, though. I, I had a book come out in October and we did it all virtual still. Um, but you, you got back out on the road. Did you have did you have good uh, good crowds? Where, uh, where did you go? Um. All over the place. It was a, it was kind of a bounce around that started on the East Coast and went a little south to Atlanta and went over to the Midwest and then we came west. So a lot yeah. of different places um, and the crowds were were pretty good. You know, I think good. capacity is low. Uh, turnout is a little bit lower than it used to be. You know, yeah. pretty much across the board. But um, considering that a year ago no, no one was doing this, it, it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, and and. Um... I was just in my local bookshop, Malaprops in Asheville, and, and talking to them about their attendance at, at different events, and they're they're doing combination of in person and virtual, and um, you know there's there's talk about authors doing uh, events 
that, that are multi-bookstore events as one online event. Um, I don't know how that exactly works in terms of like book sales for each of the venues and that kind of thing, but um, it's all new territory. I've got a, I've got a new book coming out in January that um, they're going to do partially uh, a, an, an in-person tour and then partially virtual. So um, we'll see how that goes. Uh, again, it's all kind of new territory and people are deciding what level of risk they're comfortable with and, and what size group they're comfortable with and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I remember, uh, I remember too, and I can't remember, I, maybe it was your second book. It, it, you had a tour where they put you in, in a van, like with the branding on the side of it and like a transit van and they took you around, or maybe they've done this multiple times, but I remember one time you came to Asheville as a part of a tour and stayed out at the Grove Park Inn, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that was for, um, Conference of the Birds. Oh, nice. Right yeah. before. That was January 2020. Oh, was it really? Oh, my yep. gosh. Yeah. So, oh, uh, wow. yeah, I crossed the country in a van in January 2020. Uh, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, maybe and then stayed home for that, a couple of years. Yeah. yeah, everything shut down. So the timing was both great and terrible, probably. Okay, so I have a question I have to ask about that because I've always been very jealous of the... the um, the the author buses or the author vans, right? I've seen other I've seen authors who get the van or the bus and go across country. What is it like inside one of those vans? Like I, I always imagine it's like got like a lounge chair and a desk lamp, you know, and bookshelves that you can just kind of sit there and chill out and read. D don't tell me it's just like a regular transit van in it's, there. It was just a regular van with seats. No, you know, um, because uh, you know we stayed in hotels. Um, thankfully, yeah. we didn't have to sleep in the van. Um, you don't want to sleep in a sprinter van if you don't have to, unless you're doing the van life thing and you've right. really pimped it out in the, you know, in, in nicely. Clamping. Yeah. Um, so it was just a, you know, I was a little skeptical about a giant cross country road trip, but um, yeah. I went with my lovely publicist, Elise Marshall, and we had a great driver who was a really cool guy. And we just became, you know, like the three musketeers. And uh, it was fun because I got to, you know, figure out where we were going to stop to get. Um, hipster coffee in uh, you know every three or four hours and uh, boy it's just spread across the country there's you know it was an interesting way to see the united yeah. states in a way i haven't done in a long time i think the last time i did a cross-country road trip was i had just graduated from college i had gotten into well, I, had, I was gonna apply to grad school wait let me start that over i had just graduated from undergrad i was going to take a year off between undergrad and grad and i was moving to portland oregon for a year and i drove from florida to portland um, on wow. September 13th, 2001, which is a strange uh, time to cross yeah. the country. Very interesting yeah. and emotional and, and, you know, a little intense, but, um, that's the last time I did a road trip of that size. Wow. So yeah, almost 20 years. Yeah. Uh, the country's I don't know changed that a little I've ever, bit. Yeah. A little bit. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I've ever, I've done, I've done a lot of long drives, but I, I've never done one that's purposefully like cross country from one coast to the other. I'd still love to do that. I'd love to take a train trip uh, from from one coast to the other. Would be, I think, would be a really fun way to travel. Um, at least it, it romantically, it seems like that. Um, it probably if our trains were, you know, yeah. more like Europe's trains or Asia's yeah. trains, I'd be really down for that. But I know, right? Now I did do that. I've done that in Europe and in Asia, and those are those are amazing trips. I'm I'm not sure how Amtrak would do. Um, well, that's good. I, 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 I wanted to know what, what it was like to travel in one of those vans. Um, you know, it's, it feels like the, the band on a, in a tour bus. Yeah, no, it's well, yeah, it wasn't that kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. Luckily we yeah. didn't have to sleep or cook in the van, but, um, yeah, it was really nice not to, ha you know, when you're on an author on tour, you're at an airport one or two times a day. Yeah. Um, and the likelihood that something's going to go wrong and you'll have to cancel cancel an event is like super high. So yep. it's partly just for the benefit of everyone who's, you know, scheduled this out to, you know, I'm driving unless we get in a car crash, I'll be right. there, you know? Right. Yeah. So that's, do you nice. think there's a, do you think there's a better way to do author visits to promote a book? Like if you, if you had a, like a dream situation, do you, can, can, is there, is there something you would do different? The fans just come to me. That would be so easy. <laughs> no, I like actually, this idea. <laughs> I love visiting bookstores, um, yeah. although it's a little bit of a tease when you're the author doing the event because you don't have much time to comb the aisles and sit around. 
and read. Um, but I love seeing, you know, bookstores and meeting book people yeah. who tend to congregate at bookstores. So um, it's a weird thing. That's lovely. I don't know that I would change it. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you about the, the travel and the flights like that's I, I like the idea of, of traveling by car in the sense that that there, there's less chance for something to go wrong. Um, but it, it would just take so much more time. And I'm sure it did. I'm, you know, I'm sure you had to give a lot of time for that cross country trip um, trip by van. But, yeah, I, I'm with you. I love going to bookstores. I wish I had more time when I, whenever I was at a bookstore to do an event to to shop and browse. Um, but there's really, there's nothing quite like the electricity of a live event. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, and you know, writing as you well know, is a very solitary uh, occupation and, um, you can forget that people are really out there reading your books. You know, they might talk to you online a little bit, but it still feels abstract. But when you meet people in person who are excited and have opinions, it, it really, makes the whole endeavor feel more concrete. And, you know, I carry that back to my desk when I'm home again and working and um, it's fuel for the next book. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I used to do a ton of school visits. Um, I, I really, I've started to pull back from doing, um, doing school visits right before the pandemic. As a matter of fact, I, I kind of said, that's it. I'm not going to do any more school visits. And then the pandemic hit and, and um, I felt like maybe I'd somehow caused it. Um, but, um, <laughs> So, but I, I, there was a time when I was visiting more than a hundred schools a year and was wow. on the road, uh, all the time. One time we were filling out our taxes and you had to put in like how many overnights you had for, for business. And, and we, we did the math and I had 200 overnights between school visits and festivals and, and conferences. And, and I was, I was like, oh my gosh, no wonder I feel like I never see my kid, you know, um, it, it was, um, yeah. it was a lot of road time, um, so I, but, but, so I would love to not, I wish we had teleporters or something and I could just appear at a venue because I love doing the, the stuff that's live. It's the, it's the travel and that, and that, that slog that sometimes can, can feel overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. But you know, we're fortunate to. Oh, totally. They get I mean, published I, I, and go on tour. Yeah. You know, I don't want to complain at all. I'm, no, I'm, no, I, it, I wouldn't, wouldn't want any other job. I just want to put it out there. Yeah, like I love my job and I feel very, very blessed to uh, be doing this for a living. Yeah, totally, totally. So um, I know that you're a collector and uh, like you, especially a collector of, of photographs, which you've, you've talked you a lot say about. Bones. No, but I, I was, well, maybe, maybe that's your next answer. Do you, do you collect anything else? I find, that, I find that folks who are collectors are often not just collectors of one thing in particular do you collect bones do you collect I'm, other no um no i uh i am wary of my love of collecting tipping over into other areas and becoming an obsession that would you know not make my house a pleasant place to live <laughs> uh and i don't like to be surrounded by evidence of my work and my job because it's just one of many priorities i have and it's yeah. not the top one in my life so yeah. um I do have a sizable by, you know, the, the normal person standard collection of photographs, um, a couple thousand, but they're very yeah. slim. They fit in a few drawers. Uh, yeah. I have photo collector friends who have a half million pictures and are, you know, have to swim right. through them to get to the front door. Um, but that's about it. I don't really collect, you know, yeah. anything else. I've got, I've got baseball cards from when I was a kid um, and from a very selective time in, in history and, and, you know, um, I also have uh, a few comic books. Again, not to the extent that a lot of people who are comic book collectors have these exhaustive collections. Uh, and and again, very very focused on my favorite characters and my and and a particular time when I was buying those comics. So I feel like I have like incomplete collections. They're 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 much more just. Um, Mm -hmm. They're collections from a particular time uh, in my life, uh, partic you know, a particular uh, interest that, 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 like you said, wasn't my entire life and hasn't been my entire life. You know, I, um, and so I can look at those and, and, and say, well, the, that, was, that was my middle school years and that was my early high school years or that was my college years. And, and, and those things resonate for me in those ways. But I don't, I've, 
I, I'm like you. I feel like if I were to 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 tip over into completism, that I would never come back. That that um, there's a there's a, an obsessive part of me that that would want to have every comic in a run or or every year of you know of, of a particular brand of a baseball card or something and 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 that way lies madness i'm i'm, I'm sure for me yeah definitely um so i, do, I guess i have a, a small collection of uh cameras like old hmm. manual film cameras but I, don't, I hesitate even to call it a collection because i i use them i i only buy right. cameras i'm actually going to use so they don't just sit there and look pretty and i don't buy them because they might be valuable or not they're just I just like yeah. taking pictures. So I know that you're a photographer and and um, that 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 you're a filmmaker and, and photographer and and I, so I was thinking about this. Um, I, I've been going through a lot of old photos from my family, and by my family, I just mean me and my wife and my and my daughter, not my extended family, not historical photos. Uh, I've I've been trying to get a handle on our digital photo collection. And the very few print photos that we had from the early days when Wendy and I were dating and, and when we got married, when we were still taking uh, pictures with uh, with film, we've, we've replaced that almost entirely with digital, as many people have. I know that you use film cameras a lot. So I was thinking about this, though. We've taken so many pictures, my family and I have, especially now that we have a, a camera in our pocket on our phone. And I'm wondering... Do you think that do you think that f- photos are becoming l- not less valuable that's not the word I want but like w- will we ever sit around with a photo album in our lap the way that we used to with our grandparents looking at old black and white photographs of when they were kids when we have like 5000 digital photos in files on the computer like how do we are are has the ubiquitous ubiquitousness of of like taking photos made them less special? Yes, I yeah. think so, and that yeah. started to bother me a lot. I mean, I've loved photography yeah. ever since I was a kid, and I got a little manual camera for Christmas when I was in the seventh grade or something like that. And um, you know, it got replaced by digital. Digital came along in the early two thousands and started to seem pointless to you know take pictures and get them developed and wait a week and it costs money and so you know it was the way of everything film died almost completely like vinyl died you know when tapes came out um Mm -hmm. and i found myself over the years less and less interested in taking pictures because i felt like what i got back wasn't very special and the process of combing through 500 pictures I took on some vacation or whatever uh, was like so laborious that I stopped doing it. I mean, I just had yeah. mountains of crap that I would never look through. Um, and I, despite the ease with which I could, I was not really documenting my life in any meaningful way and felt like it was kind of slipping through my fingers. So I made a um, conscious decision to move over to film and say, okay, I get 24 frames on this role and I'm only bringing one role for the day. So, you know, be judicious and slow down and make it count. And um, I actually do make photo albums. At the end of every year, I print, you know, so this is really inside baseball nerd stuff. But No, that's why I asked. I love it. I, you know, I don't develop the pictures myself. I send them off to a service that's uh, not too far from where I live. And they develop the film, send me back the negatives, um, but send me, uh, like, high-quality scans of them so i have them digitally but there's a very limited number because it's film and i have the negatives which you know when the giant magnetic asteroid passes close to earth and wipes all of our hard drives in 50 years or something i will still have my (laughs) negatives at least which have a shelf life of 200 years and so anyway i print my favorite you know 10 percent of the photographs that i've taken and um i put them in an album old school it's really i love that it's really i I was feeling this no, I love that. And, and I was feeling overwhelmed. I was going through these photos and I was like, oh my gosh, look at all these photos of my daughter when she was very small and and of my wedding and, and all these things that, that I don't go back and look at. And I and I don't, you know, not in the way that we used to, like like you said, have a photo album and flip through the pictures and, and feel that nostalgia for those moments. And, um, you know, unless we make an effort to go and find those digital photos, they just stay in storage the whole time. And I guess it took an effort to pull off the, 
the the photo album and pull it down. But when it was sitting right there in the living room, you saw it and you and you might say, oh, today let's take a look at those. Whereas, you know, if it's on my computer, that's where all of my work files are, and that's you know where all of the tax stuff is. You know, it's 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 the repository for all the the the, the stuff in my life. You mm-hmm. know, um, all the minutia that I don't that I don't go through every day. So, no, I it, it was interesting to to think about the way that you use photographs and the way that you that you take photographs uh, w- with film. I've never been into photographs in the same way that you have to to care about that, to, to take them as uh, on film and, and to, to be that, that careful with them. But I, I really love that idea. Um, and I, and I was, it, it, again, it was me sort of feeling overwhelmed by the amount of photos that we had and thinking, should I, should I get some of these printed so that we have physical copies of them? And then where would I put them besides, you know, some of them go on the wall and we've done that, but, um, and I love the idea of creating a photo album and I might, might do that. Um, and I've tried to be more thoughtful about the pictures that I'm taking with my phone and not just being indiscriminate, but saying like, is this, is this something that I want to remember and, and why, you know, like what, and so uh, there are, there are, I'm sure there's lots of different answers to this question, but why, why do people take photos at all? I mean, there, there's some obvious answers, but why do you take photos? I'm trying to freeze time, you know? I think I feel very acutely the passage of time, especially as I get a little older. And since I've had a child, um, the passage of time cuts like a knife. Um, although I've been nostalgic since I was a boy. It's very strange. You know, <laughs> when I was 13, I was nostalgic for being eight. I've just always <laughs> lived with this uh, sort of burden of knowledge. You know, not, not obviously everyone knows time is passing, but I just like feel it. And mm-hmm. so I've been trying to sort of arrest it um, yeah. Because I feel I also feel like I have a, my memory's not great. I mean, I remember things, but I don't remember the texture of things, and I lose, you know, exactly what some person's face looked like or the color of the sky that day. And it's nice to look back because those little details can spark so many like adjacent memories. You know, like a smell can bring back memories that you just never would have accessed any other way. So right. I'm trying to freeze bits of time and remember things that are important to me and say, like, yeah. I was here. Right. Sometimes, you know, if you ask me, like, do you remember what you did on your 18th birthday? No. That is an important moment, you know, in any teenager's life. Like, yeah. that's a huge birthday. I, sh- I feel like I should remember what I did, but I have no memory of it. Same here. Yeah. It's strange. You so you it. look back in your life, you know, after you get through a several decades of it enough of it it feels like there's just giant blank spaces where you're like well i know stuff happened and generally (laughs) the biography is this but like i don't know i can lay out my 20s in a couple of sentences yeah and you start to lose the details and it's a little freaky i don't like that yeah no i i i love that answer i've been thinking a lot about nostalgia lately and um so there's a there's a publisher who does um books based on video games and they will uh, they will ask a writer uh, they they have a number of writers who pitch them ideas and they'll say uh, write about a video game that was important to you and at, at some point in your life and it and the entire book is about that one video game and it can be a video game from their youth it can be a video game from last year but they dive into it and they talk about Sometimes, sometimes the books are very technical. They're like, this is how it was developed, and this is the team that made it. And it feels very much like a nonfiction, just um, uh, history of that video game. But the best ones are the ones where they talk about their emotional connection to the game and, and what it meant to them in that moment. And, I, and, I've, and I've enjoyed reading uh, a lot of these books. Um, and, and, and I thought, if I wrote one, what would I write about? And there was a there was a game when I was a kid called In Search of the Most Amazing Thing. And it was a game that you played on the Apple IIe. This is going to date me a little bit. Um, but and, and I think they also had it uh, for the IBM PC and, and, and for Commodore 64. And um, you, you, you would play through. I won't get into all the details of the game. But I remember, for me, the nostalgia comes in in that that era of early video games, like going to the store 
that sold the video games and seeing the big boxes that they put those big floppy disks in and the art on the covers and the way that there might have been five to ten different software titles to choose from because it was just the early days and it could be totally random. It could be Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Infocom and it could be Snooper Troopers by you know, Broderbund or something and or Spinnaker Software or whatever. And, and you didn't really know what you were getting and you bought it and you brought it home and you stuck it in your computer and you tried it out. And, and I've been thinking a lot about the nostalgia that I have for those early days and the feeling, the feeling that of that, of that initial discovery, you know, those games aren't great. I've gone back and played a few of them in emulators online and they're boring and slow. And, you know, they, they were like, you know, 24 KB and, you know, kilobytes and stuff. And they were really tiny, but there was a magic to them for me in that moment. And, and I, and I've thought about a lot about not trying to recapture that, but just to remember it, to, to try and, and, and feel that again momentarily. Um, but the, the trap of nostalgia and thinking that things were always better, but also that joy of nostalgia and, and remembering, like you said, those, those important moments in our lives, well, they don't even have to be very important, but those moments in our lives that that had that that, that left an emotional imprint on us. Um, it's hard to go back. I mean, we it, are it, different people. Yeah. yeah. And in living in such a profoundly different time. Um, I've done that too. I've, I've, you know, cooked up a few emulators and, and gone back to games I used to love. And there aren't too many that stand up. Um, but... I think we're different people, you know. I um, I just heard yesterday that physiologically, a woman after she has a baby is a different person. Oh wow! Like they are more different than they were the same person that they were before. And uh, yeah, you just can't. Sometimes you can't go back. Although no, again, and, and it's the simpler, um, simpler, almost more innocent feel of entertainment from you know twenty plus years ago. Yeah, you could just. I like the old graphical adventure games from Sierra. Remember those? Oh yeah, the yeah. PC and stuff. You just like click around and try to find your way out of a room, and there'd be a joke or something, and it's really low key, <laughs> and there's no ticking <laughs> clock, and it felt a little more meditative, and um, right. You know, you had to use your brain a little, and I yeah. don't know. Yeah, no, and and they have you know some of the new games like you know Zelda Breath of the Wild are these amazing immersive world you know uh, open world games where you can you can lose yourself in them and so it's just very different you know it, there's like there's great games now there were great games when we were kids for what there were at the time but it was you know how we responded to them and how we interacted with them that that made such a such a big difference um does it ever feel I, to I, you I'm, like video games are um growing in their immersive beauty in direct proportion to the outside world deteriorating? Oh, maybe uh, as, as escapism, absolute escapism, um, trying to, to see, uh, well, and this is what a, a lot of writing about nostalgia is, is that the, I mean, there are many different takes on nostalgia, but the idea that, uh, that, that, that trying to remember, a time when things were better for you, at least for the for the rememberer, um, is a way of of dealing with a m perhaps more difficult present. Uh, whether that's a whether that's the environment or whether it's something very immediate and you know uh, um, personal. Um, but yeah, uh, I I think that that maybe we're getting these more immersive games that we can fall into. Um, as we want to not fall into the outside world as much, unfortunately. Back in the day, games were crappy and outside was awesome. <laughs> and now it's reversed. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Here are two brief messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Carrie Mayer, author of the national best-selling book, The Paris Bookseller. 
So I'm not just a writer, I'm an avid reader. And since Always Authors is sponsored by Bookfinity, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. Bookfinity is a website that is built by readers for readers. So you can get personalized book recommendations, create and share your book lists, review books, and refer friends to earn rewards. You start by taking a quick quiz to discover your reader type. And once you complete the quiz, you'll be taken to your My Bookfinity account. I took the quiz and got my reader type. I am a heroin addict, which is so accurate because I do love strong female leads. Now, when I log into my Bookfinity account, I will get personalized book recommendations based on my reader type. Bookfinity also has a like it or lose it function, so I can quickly like the books that I'm interested in or lose the ones that I'm not. And it has a unique review system that goes beyond a star rating. I love that I can review a book based on how it made me feel and recommend it to others. To get started, visit bookfinity.com and take the reader type quiz and create your personalized account today. Buxton Books is proud to be a season sponsor of the Always Authors podcast. Buxton Books is located in downtown Charleston, South Carolina on King Street. And we are a full-service, independent bookstore that also specializes in presenting one-of-a-kind literary events. Please come visit us in Charleston or online at buxtonbooks.com to purchase books and to receive our newsletter for information on events and booksellers' recommendations. We ship anywhere in the United States and internationally. Happy reading from Buxton Books. Um, uh, so what do you think people will be nostalgic for in 40 years? Oh, God, I don't know. If you can tell me what the world's going to be like in 40 years, uh, I'd probably run away and hide under my bed. <laughs> um, it's so hard to say. That's Yeah, I know. I know. I don't know. I mean, I'm tempted to say nothing. Everyone's so, <laughs> um, so doom and gloom right now. I, I, mean, I, I think tell people you what, will miss Twitter. I think I think Twitter, mm-hmm. I think Twitter and, and Instagram won't exist in their forms. They might die. They may die soon, or they may uh, linger. But um, I think I think that's stuff that people will, I, because it will be replaced forty years from now. I, you're right. I don't know what forty years will look like, but I do know that technology moves on so fast. I can't imagine that what we're what we're using and doing now will be will be what we're doing in forty years. I'm just. I think if you know. I showed the world of today to my myself in the past. I would my past self would be very surprised at how much of our technological industry and innovation has gone into programs for your phone. <laughs> yeah, and not you know like real external like things that you can use in a physical way. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, but I I mean I don't know. I feel like right now. Young people have nostalgia for an era they never knew because it was one that existed before the internet or when the internet was like a much more toothless thing that was not a deeply integrated part of your every moment. Right. And uh, even, you know, people who are not even old enough to vote are so burned out by social media and all the demands put on them by uh, connected life that, you know, I don't know if they're going to miss Instagram. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know if they'll miss it, like wish they had it back. But I, but I wonder about that nostalgia of like, hey, remember when we all used to post stuff to Instagram? You know, like, right. uh, you know, like, you know, remember when vines were a thing? You know, and and um, you know, just the maybe that that if if not a longing to return to the past so not a restorative kind of nostalgia where they want to get it back but more like a reflective one right. where hey remember remember yeah. when when we all cared about x you know uh, um i feel like the natural like life cycle of nostalgia is speeding up as change does and now people yeah. are nostalgic for things that happened like 4 years ago <laughs> when Instagram was just about posting still photos. Remember pre-COVID when all we had to worry oh, yeah. about was the, you know, our horrible president or whatever. Oh, simpler right. times. Right. Uh, yeah, the simpler times of five years ago. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, you know, uh, kids feeling nostalgic for things within their own lifetimes. Um, when it took... It took this long for us to get back to the nostalgia of the 80s. Um, 
some of us, yeah. you know, carried that torch for a long time, but uh, but others have just come back to it. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. Um, well, what are you working on right now? Uh, I have a um, a graphic novel uh, coming out with Marvel and Scholastic that's Captain America in World War II. Very cool. Uh, that's called Captain America the Ghost Army. It comes out in January. And I'm working on a book about the attack on Pearl Harbor. So that that book will be... Okay. For 2024. So um, I go back and forth between sort of big contemporary issue kind of stuff and and big events of the past. Um, yeah, but it's kind of uh, kind of wraps into all of this, too, about writing about the past and and talking about the past. And so you do um, a lot of research. you I do. I have to do a lot. Um the, this one for you know for something like the attack on Pearl Harbor it was about an hour and a half two hours and so it had a beginning and a middle and an end and we know exactly how it started and we know what happened in the middle of it we know how it ended um, so those are easier to research they're not easy but there's a there's a finite amount you know the finite time that this event happened um, writing about something like climate change uh, or refugee crisis which is ongoing, you know, you, you kind of have to pick a moment in time and uh, like you're talking about, take a, take a shot of, of a photo of it and, and, and capture it. Um, whereas the, whereas for me, the, 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 the stories that are about the battle of Okinawa or the, you know, the battle of D-Day or, or the attack on Pearl Harbor, those, those are more comprehensive of that, that whole event. Um, I, I know how it begins and ends. Um, but yeah, the research process for me is is uh, is a long one, and and I'm and I'm I, by the end of it, I, I'm at the end of the research phase now for for the attack on Pearl Harbor book, and um, I'm raring to write, but I still have to finish that last little bit of research and and get it moved into my outline and and be ready to go. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a lot of work, but I love it. Uh, uh, you know, you talked earlier about loving what you do, and I do too. I'm, I, I love to 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 sink into a time and uh, research the heck out of it. Do you approach that research in a in a really structured way, or do you just sort of read and read? I start. I, I guess I do a little bit of structure. Um, I start with general overviews of a time and a place so that I can get the context uh, of something historically. And then I'll move into maybe a book that's specifically about, like, so if I'm, if I'm, um, if I'm doing the attack on Pearl Harbor, I might read uh, a book about the, uh, the, 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 the American war in the Pacific at large and, and, and look at it, you know, before the attack on Pearl Harbor, the attack, and then what happened after it to kind of get the context of it. Then I'll read books that are just about Pearl Harbor. And then, then I'll zoom in even farther and I'll look for uh, personal accounts from from people, civilians and, and soldiers and sailors who were there. Um, and, and, and I guess kind of zoom in. I've heard it referred to like a snowflake method where the, you know, you take the, 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 the if, you, if you imagine a snowflake and you start on the outside and you keep working your way into the heart of the snowflake, getting closer and closer to, to that core uh, on the research. So I start broadly and then and then zoom in, um, and and at least in the reading, and then the whole time I'm reading about a thing, I, I read anything and everything. Even uh, I'm looking for the story in it in that research, and so the whole time I have a different file open that's um, scenes from my Pearl Harbor book, and uh, if I, if I read about one incredible thing that happened at Pearl Harbor, I might write that in there as a possible scene. And, and when I when I feel like I have enough of those scenes to make a, a story out of, I stop, write those out on note cards, pin them up on a big board in my office and try to start building the story. And some of the stuff that I read doesn't fit. I have to throw it out. And some of it, there's holes, and I have to go back and do more focused research for, okay, I need to know more about the sub-base at Pearl Harbor or this airfield at Pearl Harbor or the nurses who were working at this hospital on Pearl Harbor you know, if, if I realize that's where I want the story to go and I don't have enough information about that, then I'll go in and, and look for, look for more pointed research there. But, um, and uh, by that point, 
then I, then I really can be very specific about what I'm researching. But at first it's very broad and me trying to find my way into a story. I, um, I might have an idea of what I want to say with a book, uh, about a particular time and a place, what, what kind of theme I want to work with. But oftentimes that off, that comes out of the, the research itself. That sounds very professional. I'm <laughs> envious of your fortitude and uh, focus. Um, I've done a lot of research over the years for my books, but of course my yeah. books are mostly fake and made up. So the, uh, <laughs> the history part is sort of optional. I just really enjoy feathering in real details and the, yeah. you know, the texture of uh, real times and you know things with yeah. um, with all this fantasy to sort of ground it to give the yeah. fantasy a counterweight um, that perhaps allows the reader to escape a little bit more into what feels like a mostly real world with this door to fantasy built into it. Yeah, no, that's I how agree. I like uh, my fantasy. You know, I, I want to feel yeah. like I could really go there. It's not, you know, a completely made up world. There's a little bit of plausibility. Right. No, when I was a kid, I really loved stories. Like I, it, it, there were a lot of post-apocalyptic stories when I was a kid because of the threat of nuclear war and and all these these post-nuclear apocalypse kind of stories. And you know, I remember some of my favorites were the ones where the world looked different but was kind of the same. Where the they would they would uh, the, the you know the barbarians would go across the river and they would wade up through the river into the ruins of a city and there's a sign that says Newark you know welcome to Newark and and it's not Newark anymore but it but it but it was and and there was something about that kind of actual geography in a fantasy story that i really really loved as a kid and um that i've tried to do too i, I wrote a series called the league of 7 and it's an alternate 1860s um, United States uh, with giant monsters and airships and ray guns and clockwork robots and um, and I tried to put in real places and and real things from the 1860s but also things that maybe didn't make it to the 1860s in the in in North America but in my fantasy version had continued to to exist uh, there was a very there was a big Native American city called Cahokia around St. Louis. Um, mm -hmm. At least they found the ruins of Cahokia, and, and I go there and climb it. It's like a giant. Oh, can you? Pyramid. I didn't realize that. It's totally amazing. Yeah. Oh, very cool. I'll have to do that. So I, I, I put the city of Cahokia as, as as still a place that you could visit in my in my North America of the 1860s, and so I pulled things out like That's that, cool. and yeah, spun them forward and said, what would they be like if they hadn't gone away? If they were still with us? Um, I love that stuff as a kid, and and I've tried to do that as an adult in the. In the Captain America book I've got coming out, um, there's it's called the Ghost Army for a couple of reasons. The United States had, in World War II, a unit called the Ghost Army. And it was uh, a, a unit made up of musicians and artists and stage magicians uh, and, and sound engineers. And their job was to trick the enemy. Like, they, they deliberately found people who were creative types, put them all into one unit. And they said, we want you to to do whatever you can to make the Nazis think we are in places that we're not. So they recorded the sounds of, of troops on the move, and then they would drive through forests with giant speakers on their trucks like the Blues Brothers and project the sounds of, of troops on the move so that nearby villages would think that there were people out in the woods. They, they, made, fake, <laughs> uh, yeah, they made fake airplanes and would lay them out in fields and fake tanks, they had inflatable tanks. There are great pictures of like four guys picking up these things and walking them and putting them down in fields so that as German spy planes would fly over, they would think we had more troops where we were. Um, and they were called the Ghost Army, and they were actually really influential on, on D-Day in trying to convince the Germans that we were invading different places besides Normandy. Um, we had, we, we dropped dummies uh, from on parachutes from airplanes in other places and they had tape recordings inside them that made sound effects like they were shooting rifles so that it sounded like what? they were so yeah so it sounded like this there were soldiers coming well. down right so th there was a real u.s ghost army and in my book captain america and 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 his sidekick bucky barnes they they run into him and they fight alongside them but of course because it's a fantasy novel too the Nazis are resurrecting their dead soldiers as a ghost army to 
to fight Captain America. Oh, nice. See what it did yeah. there. So, um, but but the real Ghost Army is a real thing, and I loved pulling that that real history into into the book. I I think those things like you're talking about there, it helps ground the fantasy and makes the fantasy feel like like maybe it could be real, could have happened. I think it, it, it it's just a lot of fun. I mean, there are so many things in history that are stranger than, you know, fiction. That <laughs> yeah. if you put it in a fiction book, people would tell you it, it, it was made up and, you know, not yeah. real. And This is a problem wonderful. I actually have. Yeah. I have to, I have to be really mm-hmm. careful. And my editor and I have this kind of rule that if, it, that if it's unbelievable on the page, even if it really happened, I can't use it. Now, you can, you can have something like the Ghost Army that is really exceptional – and then you can make it the focus of something. And you could say, look at this exceptional thing that we did. And then you can talk about it. And as long as you lampshade it and say, this was really exceptional and it was real, then people are good with it. But if you, if you have one random thing in, a, in an otherwise totally believable story of the past that feels anachronistic or feels out of place, and you don't, you don't have anybody call it out, then you got to cut it. Because it'll right. it'll pull people out of the story. It's distracting. Even if it really happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It has to feel like it's part of the story you're telling. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I always have to be really careful about the way my characters talk. Um, you know, the, the, uh, I, I want them to feel... I want them to be accessible to a modern reader. I don't want them to talk in such slang and 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 have such a worldview that they that my readers can't connect with them but at the same time they have to speak like they really exist in the 1930s or 1940s um i really feel like if we were airlifted into the 19th century or you know anything further back than that we would um be kind of like going to an alien civilization i agree and all of the historical fiction we read and stuff is so modernized and told from our perspective and it's impossible to really get back to you know what people looked like and sounded like and yeah you know how they felt and my very first book um was a book called samurai shortstop and it was about kids in 1890s tokyo blending uh bushido the samurai way of the warrior with their baseball practices and because i i read about the meiji period and there was a time when people were running around with samurai swords and baseball bats at the same time in japan just briefly and um, it was an amazing time to write about and, and, a, and a, a time that where Japanese culture and society just got turned on its head. And um, so I, uh, I have some characters in this book who, who are kids in the 1890s, Japanese kids in the 1890s. And they make some decisions that kids in the United States in the present day might not make. Um, there's some... There's some hazing that goes on that really did happen at this at this high school um, that's that, that's pretty painful and pretty violent. And I got some people who criticized my depictions of those scenes and said, how can you be advocating or supporting this this hazing? And I was like, whoa, 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 I'm not. I'm not. And, and, and clearly in the book, there are characters who really hate this and they're 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 hurt by it. But but me putting it in the book is not me supporting it. Me putting it in the book is saying this is something that happened then, and and we've hopefully come a long way. And and, and it, here in the United States and in Japan, they wouldn't do this, you know. And, and so like, like this is just the way this is the way the kids were thinking and acting in the 1890s. And it was strange. I got a lot of pushback from people who were like, "No, they need to act like today's kids." And I'm like, "But but they're not." And 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 I think people, like you said, forget that that if we went back a hundred years, people would. We would be acting a lot differently than than we than we see now. I'd like to read a book about like you know kids who were child labor in some shirt factory in New yeah. York City in the eighteen nineties or something. I mean that's that's crazy stuff. There's right. no relation to what people's lives are like today. Oh yeah, no, I, I talk about this with kids a lot, and they'll say like, "What time period would you like to go back to?" And I'm like, "Well." I mean, there are some times I'd like to go back to if I was rich and lived in a big city, but there are definitely time, but those same time periods were very different if you were poor or if you were from, from a rural area, or even if you lived in a city and you were poor, like there, these, like if you were a kid, you'd be working, you know? And, and, and I think a, a lot of times we, we forget the progress that we've made 
and we forget that it's something that we have to keep working for and fighting for. And um, that if if we just accept it, then then those that progress can be taken away from us. We can uh, we can backslide without meaning to, but it can also be sort of taken away from us uh, on purpose to to return us to a time and a place. And um, you know, uh, like uh, speaking of nostalgia and and kid stuff, when when I was a kid in the eighties, there was this explosion of um, of animated shows that were all about selling toys. Right, you had like the Transformers and and the Smurfs and 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 um, you know had uh, Mask was a was a cartoon on for a little while that was just built for the toys and um, that was all because of uh, because there had been there had been rules previously that you couldn't put ads in TV shows you couldn't you, you the ads had to be in between the content and then in the Reagan era they they said we we got this nobody's going to do that. So let's just get rid of that law. And as soon as that law went away in the 80s, all the cartoons became long 20-minute commercials for the toys. Right? That's where that's where so many of those early cartoons came from. And before that it was like Hanna-Barbera or Tom and Jerry, you know, and it was just screwball stuff with ads in between it. Now the ads were basically the whole show. You know, Go go buy this new transformer. Here come the dino the the Dinobots. Go buy those. You know, and um, we forget. You know, as soon as we as soon as we as soon as we let those that progress go, as soon as we stop fighting for that progress or stop defending it, um, we can go. We can easily go back. Uh, hopefully, we never go back to you know child labor. Jesus, <laughs> came a long way from. Well, I mean, there's still plenty of parts of the world where. That's right. what people think, but right. um, yeah, but yes, yeah, no. The ubiquity of advertising is uh, depressing, and that yeah. you know the the advertising shows being branded has not changed at all. It's just gotten worse. Mm -hmm. All toys seem to be branded now, and clothes, and right, you know, every second of our lives. <laughs> no, I know to an advertiser yeah. in some way. Yeah, so I sound uh, like an old curmudgeon now. I know, right? Get off my lawn. <laughs> well, I've Alan, been um, feeling that I have way really enjoyed our conversation. Um, my laptop battery is uh, nearing death. <laughs> I thought it would last a little longer, but um, uh, I think we've had a pretty good chat. No, it's been great. Uh, it's been great to reconnect with you and to to um, uh, in a nostalgic way to talk with you Absolutely. again. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I continue to love uh, love your books, and and I know kids do too. Um, uh, what do you got? Uh, anything else you want to uh, plug that's coming out? I know you just had a book come out. What are you working on? What, what's next for you? Um, yep, Museum of Wonders just came out a, a couple of months ago, and um, I am working, have been working for a little while on a book I'm very excited about, but cannot talk about because we <laughs> have not announced it yet. Secret but project. It is, um, it is not a Peregrine book. Okay. All right. Something new. All right. Exciting. Well, listen, uh, Rancid, it was awesome to talk to you as well. Uh, hopefully we will see each other again on the circuit. I hope so. Thank All right, you well, for this listening. Was fun. Be well. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes, to read a transcript of this episode, to buy the books discussed here, and for more information about our sponsors, bookfinity.com and Buxton Books. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment. Cheers.